Have you ever been outside and just known that a storm is coming? The air gets heavy, the sky changes color, the clouds shift around, the wind begins to smell sweet sometimes. You can smell the rain coming. Change is in the wind. Sometimes it's a torrential storm. Sometimes it's refreshing rain after a dry season. Life has those same seasons for us. In the same way we can feel change in the weather, most of us know when change is around us, and sometimes it smells sweet to us. It's a welcome thing. Sometimes it's, it's scary because change can come like a thunderstorm. It can be torrential. It can be an upheaval. Change can also be sweet, and sometimes the same change brings both results depending on your perspective or your place in life. The thing about change is that we don't, as individuals, have the ability to impact the grand sweep of culture and history. What we're left to do is to respond to it. And in a world that's consistently changing, and we've never been in a time where change isn't so significant, the church is experiencing its own upheaval and change. The wind of change is sweeping through the church today, and for some that's a terrifying thought. For others, it's welcome. The point isn't whether it's right or wrong, it's just inevitable. How you respond to change in culture, how does a church respond to a postmodern world now where we do things differently, we think differently? As a church, how do we hold the truth, the eternal truth of the Bible, but bring it to a new culture, a new society? Just like in Samuel's day, the response is, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We need to recognize that change is inevitable. Change is interesting. <laughs> but most important, change is an opportunity to listen carefully to what God may be trying to say. The story that we're coming to today is a time where change is in the wind for Israel. Last week, Paul did a tremendous job summarizing the entire book of Judges for us. I'm going to give him all the hard stuff from now on. <laughs> the people of Israel had entered the promised land with such great promise, the parting of the Jordan River into victory, the memorials to God's overwhelming power in their lives, and yet this cycle of sin that kept repeating itself, and Judges really ends sadly. After all these cycles, chapter 21, verse 25, let's say it together. At that time, there was no king in Israel. People did whatever they felt like doing. Two centuries from the time where Joshua said to them, consecrate yourselves, and tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you, to them doing whatever they felt like. No priority for God, no authority in their life, just each one being their own authority, doing whatever made sense for them. That is the story of Judges in a nutshell. The story we're about to read is the calling of a young man, really a boy, into a position of prominence who would be a catalyst for change, and that's young Samuel. But in the time when we find him, we are at the end of this period of Judges. In fact, the first verses that Dave read for us express that. It's really a connection to the end of Judges when it says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
So we have this sense of great spiritual darkness. This is really a story about three characters. There's Eli, there's Samuel, and then there's God. We usually would overlook Eli in the story as an example of the old guard that was passing away who had failed their test, but really Eli had a very important role to play. And in a season of change, we actually need Eli's as much as we need Samuel's. Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see. The scene takes place at night. It's all meant to carry us into this sense of darkness, this sense of spiritual blindness. The chapters leading up to this tell the story of Samuel's miraculous birth. You can go back and read it, and you'll find that his mom, Hannah, was barren. It's a common scenario, isn't it? Have you noticed how often in the line where God's going to work, there's barrenness? Samuel is part of that line of the righteous voices of God. And so there's a miraculous nature in his birth even. You read Hannah's prayers. It's as though she's not just crying for herself, but she's speaking of the spiritual barrenness of her people. So as we come to this moment, there's this sense of spiritual barrenness. Israel has reached a dead end. They're not producing spiritual people anymore. And there's this sense of great darkness But then it's contrasted. In the temple, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Think about that. The land is dark. The voice of God is rarely heard. But the lamp of God had not yet gone out. There's still a presence of God. He hadn't abandoned them. And this is where Samuel is. He's laying next to that lamp, and he's before the Ark of the Covenant, which, of course, speaks of the presence of God. Change is in the wind. There is, there is hope. Out of this, God spoke. It's a beautiful statement. We can overlook it in English. The Hebrew is so much more beautiful. Out of all of this, barrenness, darkness, great eras of time, the word is then. God spoke to Samuel. Then, out of that, God speaks. It's interesting. 200 years have gone since they've come into the land. 200 years since the season of the exploits, 200 years since they spoke about how great God was and established a monument in the promised land to God's greatness. Did you know that in New England, it's about 250 years since the Great Awakening? Did you know that? About 250 years since Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield graced the fields and the churches all in New England, and birthed a great work of God, the monuments of which still stand today, institutions that were founded, missions organizations, churches. If you go farther back, Massachusetts was actually founded as a Christian colony. Did you know that? Are you allowed to study that anymore in school? I don't don't know. But the original charter for Massachusetts was about preserving the gospel and bringing the gospel to the world. If you're new to New England, one of the things that is pretty interesting is to go into all these historic town centers, and one of the things that you notice is um, a church, right? Typically one church that you can tell was put strategically right in front of the green that you can sense at one point was the center of the life of the town. And you might suspect that that means that, of course, the people in that town at one time were very religious. Yes, but what you may not know is that originally you could not charter to be a town if you did not have a church. 
this is the region we, we now live in. Does it look anywhere like that? Many of those churches have been turned into museums, are certainly not the centerpiece of life. You see, sometimes, and I don't want to overplay this contrast between those days, but I wonder if we shouldn't pay more attention to it than we do, because you can get comfortable in the state of affairs in which you are set. Settle for what is. Today in this city, about 3% of its population will be in a church that believes that this Bible is authoritative from God and that holds to the gospel. Only 3%. 250 years causes a, a lot of change, doesn't it? But just like In the time of Samuel, the lamp of God hasn't gone out. The lamp of God, the presence of God, is still very much in New England. And in the same way, New England changed the world 250 years ago. We believe God could do that again. And some of us believe there's change in the wind, that God's at work. It's why we have taken this great step of faith to be part of that work. We don't claim of the journey to be the only corner on the market where God's at work, but we sure want to be in on it. We want to be one of the places where Jesus is actually building his church. We're not just building an organization about Jesus. So there's change in the wind. You see the parallels here? And some of the ways that we see different characters respond to this change may speak to us today as well. So let's let's go through the story. I've already explained chapters 1 and 2. But let's now pick it up out of verse 4. Then the Lord calls Samuel. One of the most telling parts of it is uh, verse 7. It says uh, Samuel didn't know the Lord yet. He hadn't been introduced to him. He heard the voice of God and didn't know it was God's voice. Three times he gets up, he's groggy, goes to his master Eli and says, yeah, yeah, what do you want? You called me. Eli says, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed, does it again. And after the third time, Eli starts catching on. See, even though it says that visions were rare and God didn't speak much, Eli had been one who at one time God had spoken to. It had just been long enough in his life that it took him a while to catch on. Eli was the one that saw what God was doing. Says to Samuel, next time you hear that voice, You say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears, because God is speaking to you. And that's exactly what happens. This time, verse 10, Samuel gets his first message from God, and it's not an easy one. The first section of it is very hopeful. He says, I'm going to do something in Israel. They're going to hear about it, and their ears are going to tingle. Been a long time since people's ears tingled out of excitement about what God was going to do. That's the good part. God's going to do something fresh and new. Good news, bad news. The bad news is that we've got to get new leadership for that to happen. And so I'm going to remove Eli's seed from leadership. You see, Eli had served in Shiloh where the tabernacle was his whole life, and he had inherited that role as priest from his father. And it would be normal for him to pass that role on to his sons, except that his sons hadn't turned out so good. They misused their power. God had already spoken to Eli and said, you have to fix this or they're not going to take over the family business. There's no way I'm going to let them speak for me. 
We don't know how hard Eli tried. We could stand in judgment of Eli. The older I get, the less I want to judge anybody in Scripture. (laughs) The more we recognize they're just like us. No real heroes, just people that need grace. And a God who does miraculous things when we step forward, as frail as we are, into his promises. Well, Eli, I have a little more patience for Eli these days, too. We don't know how hard he tried. But just like most of us, he's, he's getting old. His body's starting to shut down. He's got family problems. Kids aren't turning out exactly the way he wants. We're going to learn in a few minutes that doesn't mean that Eli is counted out by God. It doesn't. But it does mean that his kids are going to bear up under their own disobedience. That's the second message. So Samuel, it says, lays in bed all night. Why does he have to say that? Don't you normally sleep at night, even after a vision? That's what happens to me quite regularly. (laughs) I think he was just fearful because he had to deliver this message to Eli. Eli has to threaten him (laughs) with a curse if he doesn't tell him. And then he tells him. Eli's response is really important. Let's pick it up from verse 17. What is it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. So in other words, he told him not only about the new work of God that's going to come, and the excitement, the change that's in the wind, but the judgment on Eli's family and on his sons. Here's Eli's response. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And so out of that, a new leader is established in Israel. David already read it, but let's read the result of what happened. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all of Israel. So when God starts speaking, and there's a hungry culture around, people start paying attention. And so very quickly, Samuel is established as the voice of God. Now, let's remember that he still serves under Eli. And I want you to look at both of those characters because Eli really is Samuel's mentor. Usually we write uh, Eli off as an old man physically ailing, should just get out of the way so that new leadership can get in the way. But that's really not what happens here. Without Eli, Samuel would have never been prepared for the role that he was meant to play. Eli represents for us the role of the older generation in a season of change. He saw what God was doing. He helped Samuel know it was God's voice. He blessed what God was doing at his own expense. And probably most important, he yielded right of way to the new leadership. He stepped aside. He understood what God was doing even at his own expense, even at the expense of his legacy. He was able to see what God was doing He was able to equip that generation to hear the voice of God. And then he was willing to step out of the way and let Samuel emerge in the place that once was Eli's, in the place that Eli presumed and always thought would be 
the place of his sons. I, I think that takes a lot for him. I think that God used Eli, and he served God well in those final years. We need Eli's today. We need them guiding tomorrow's leaders. Paul and I have been reading a book about guiding the spiritual journey, helping shape the spiritual journey of emerging adults. And one of the things that it points out is that the generation right now that's represented by those of you from like 34 years and down in this room are the 101st generation since Pentecost. I don't quite know how they figure that out, but I trust them. You're the 101st generation since Pentecost. That's a, that's a powerful thought. And we have to think about how we are helping your generation prepare for what's ahead. Our job as Eli's is to give them the tools they need and then bless what God's going to do through them. And then there's Samuel. Samuel had to learn he needed help. He lacked wisdom. He didn't even recognize God's voice when it was speaking to them. He needed courage. It was an interesting first message, wasn't it? Young boy, God didn't make it easier for him the first time. He spoke God's blessing, and he spoke God's judgment. I, I like the importance of that simple statement, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And to me, there's three things in there. Speak, Lord, is about truly seeking to hear God's message for us. Your servant reminds us that it's not about us. People who claim to speak for God, but personally, personally gain from it, seek to be elevated, seek to position themselves as more important, more significant, are not people that have heard from God. People that hear from God remember that always they're simply a servant of him. They approach what they do humbly, grateful to be used. Paul says, we didn't come to you peddling the word of God for profit, but as men sent from God. I think that same idea of how Paul went about bringing the good news was carried by Samuel, by the simple thing that Eli taught him. First, listen to God, speak, but remember you're his servant. And the third thing, your servant is listening. In the Hebrew word for listening, it, it doesn't just mean I get it, I intellectually understand. It's passed through my ears into my brain. Listening means assimilating. It's the intellectual equivalent to digestion when I eat. If I were just to chew, swallow, and then throw up like people who uh, are emotionally sick do, I'm not really eating, right? I'm not eating till I've digested. In the same way, listening means metabolizing it into change metabolizing into change. And so when we say to God, speak, we're saying we want your voice in this circumstance. When we say it's your servant who's seeking that, we're saying we just want to serve you. We just want to be your vehicle. And we promise when we hear your voice, it's going to change us, and through us it's going to become a message to the world around us. We need Samuels. We need Samuels. I think there's something really powerful here that I, I'm still figuring out myself. It came to me a little late in the week. Uh, I, I'm sharing it to you as best as I can bring it to you, but I, I think it's something for us to unpack as we think about what it means to be a church that is committed 
to be intergenerational, to be, as Scripture says, be a place where the Word of God, the love of God, the message of the gospel is passed from generation to generation. We're, again, talking about huge changes taking place in society and church. How do we respond? How do we remain faithful to the Bible and the gospel but still speak with meaning to the new culture? How do we listen to and see what God is doing? And how do we become part of it? How do we take the dim light of God's presence and see it fanned into a flame of revival? How do we do that? Well, I just want to repeat again. We need Eli's. (laughs) We need Eli's. The thing is, once you get old enough, you realize we've all got scars. One of my favorite little books about faith in the last 10 years is an honest little book by Mike Iaconelli called Messy Spirituality. In my 30s, I thought I had to really prove I had it all figured out. And then in my 40s, I learned I didn't have it all figured out. Now that I'm in my 50s, I'm actually pretty happy about that because I'm recognizing I'm still on a journey and I'm learning so much more now. I've learned to be authentic and to let God minister through my cracks and my weaknesses just as he ministers through the the lessons and the successes. You can only do that when you've reached a certain stage in your life. That's where Eli was. Yeah, the Bible's honest about it. He wasn't perfect. But that doesn't mean God couldn't use it. And in many ways, perhaps God used him out of that brokenness more in his final years with Samuel than in all the years before that. Maybe Eli had to get to this humbled state so that he could really be used as the voice of wisdom to the next generation. We need Eli's who will accept the inevitability of change, (laughs) learning to preserve what is of God and let go of our old ways. That's the hardest thing for our generation. You know, those of us that are now what you'd call elder church people. I don't mean elderly. I just mean elders. Those of us that are a little older, facing the back third of our lives, just in the front edge of it, we're the baby boomers, right? We were growing up in the 70s. How many of you were high school students sometime in the 70s? Well, then there are the true elderly among us who, uh, who knew the 60s. We saw ourselves as the great change generation, weren't we? right? We like to look back and see how we even changed the church. We changed worship. We changed outreach. We gave birth to all sorts of things. We were the generation to change. But right now, we can be the generation of stuck in the mud because we like all those changes. And like the generation that came before us, we somehow take the forms and the programs that God used and equate them to the success that God brought. It's not just that God did it, it's how God did it that we want to make important. But that's the thing about change. The very things that worked for a previous generation in a different season are just tools. And those same things that were used to speak to us at one time don't speak to the next generation. It's not to say God doesn't speak, but God always births. I I love this thought that we could be in a place as a journey. That's the beauty about starting a church. We could be in a place where God could be saying, I'm going to do something that's going to make your ears tingle. (laughs) 
See, it's why we use the word organic when we talk about being a church. And we're still trying to figure that out. But what we know is we want our structures to simply be a tool for what the church really is. And that's a body. It's not an organization. So the structures are things we hold loosely to. And if they're not working, we look for other structures that God can use because it's the message of the gospel. Listen to me. It's not the programs that change lives. What does the Bible say changes lives? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's the gospel. What we need to learn is to trust the gospel, to hold to the gospel in changing times. But we need to find the structures and the way of doing things that will bring that gospel to a a generation, to a a culture around us now that is completely post-Christian. Eli's are people that can get past what they did in the old days, hold on to the truth of the Bible, but embrace change. We need Eli's. We need Eli's who will see what God is doing now and call it out of the next generation and teach them to hear the voice of God. We need Eli's who will then make room for them to make change. But we also need Samuels. (laughs) We need younger, new leaders to emerge, men and women alike in all of these generations, who will realize that as much as you know right now, you don't know everything. You haven't yet heard and recognized the voice of God with what comes with years, and that's wisdom. In the same way Samuel needed a broken-down old man to teach out of that wisdom what he needed to do to hear God and respond, you do too. We need Samuels who realize that they don't necessarily recognize God's voice, who recognize that God has placed Eli's in their lives to teach them wisdom and will embrace what can be learned, value what God has done in the past, even as they recognize what no longer works and seek to be the voice of radical change, but with the eternal gospel of Christ at the heart of everything we do. Even as I share this, I'm I'm hoping that the words that found their way onto my paper really do justice to this vision, but I hope that you hear it today. We need both. We need Eli's to recognize the voice of God. We need Samuel's to hear and respond. Here's here's another really important point. When we read the rest of the story, we're going to recognize that Samuel was really, he, like Eli, was just a transitional character in the grand story. He reached a point where God called him to call out new leadership. And he had to mentor that leadership and then step aside so that leader could emerge. And in this case, that leader was the big dog. We know him as David. See, the point is, it's always generation to generation. So for those of us that are uh, in the season stages of our lives, I believe our most significant role is to pour ourselves, our brokenness, our success, not necessarily our ways, but all those lessons, to pour that into the 101st generation. But your job, 101, is to get ready for 102 and to prepare to reproduce yourself through them. I I think it's a beautiful picture, but it, it doesn't end great yet. It actually gets worse 
in the next couple of chapters, which represent 20 years of Samuel's life. 20 years as the final judge. He was the last of the judges. But during those 20 years, it got worse before it got better. The ark was taken from Shiloh by the Philistines, who came in and utterly defeated Israel. No one thought anybody could destroy Israel because of the ark of the covenant. It represented the power and authority of God. It was legendary among, among the enemies of Israel. And when the Ark of the Covenant was there, they trembled in fear, but that magic, that, that mojo fell. They took the Ark with them. For 20 years, the Philistines had possession of it. And throughout those two decades, Samuel had a very difficult ministry of traveling through that land, judging, pointing them back to God. At the end of those 20 years, finally then, there's revival. After two decades of ministry, there's revival. They're tired of being dominated. It's the last of that cycle that Paul pointed out last week of disobedience and judgment of God. And finally, he calls them to repentance. And this is a repentance that's transformational to them. Through Samuel's leadership, they have a great victory over the Philistines and recover the Ark of the Covenant. It took two decades to get to this point where real change occurs just in time for Samuel to step out of the way. <laughs> no time to celebrate, no time to build his legacy, just in time for God to say, I'm going to do another new thing. And Samuel played his part and God blessed. See, somewhere in there are, are you and me. We're called to be that in this society and this culture. And we need to believe that God hasn't abandoned it. We need to believe that the lamp of God has not gone out and that God still speaks. He still calls us to be bold. Some of us need to step up and be Eli's. Some of us need to be ready to be Samuel's. In fact, all of us need to be one or the other. I don't really know where this needs to land in your heart today, but I believe God does. And I hope you see the interesting parallels between where we may be as a culture and the time of Samuel, that we, like Samuel, could be positioned as a church to be a part of God doing a powerful thing that will bring people back to him in this region. Why don't you just take a minute and just sit silently and let these ideas come into your spirit and maybe just say, speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. And see what God says to you in these moments. And then what he says to you, make the change.